Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. Thankful for the many different kinds of stories that illustrate to us your love. Your love that not, doesn't just leave us the way we are, but it changes us. Guide us to see that the foundation of all of our beliefs is found in Jesus today. For we ask it in his name. Amen. There was a few years ago back in community college. And as you're in community college, a lot of times uh, there's classes you take that are requirements that you wonder, okay, why am I taking this class? Actually, I was, at, I was at Union College, and that summer, it was about t- the year 2002, and my normal course curriculum is the Bible and Greek and Hebrew and all of that, but I had to squeeze in a philosophy class, a history class, and a geography class. And so that summer, I tried to knock out at least two of them, and one of them was a philosophy class, and it was at this college, not at the Adventist College, but at Southeast Community College. And it was 6.3 miles away, and I didn't have a driver's license at the time, so I hopped on my bike, and I just rode the route. I just started off where I was at. I rode right off campus. I still remember the route. I remember the roads I'd go down and all of that, going on 48th Street and eventually turn off. And I just remember there I am, finally getting to this college. And you have to leave a little ways ahead of time to do that. And I would park my bike, lock it up. I'd go in. And the first time I was in class, I wondered to myself, okay, where is this going? It was an intro to philosophy class, and it was an elderly gentleman. He was retired from teaching, but he was teaching this during the summer for a little extra pay. And there he is telling us about Plato. Okay, not Plato, but Plato. And I remember thinking to myself, I've heard about this guy somewhere before, but who is this guy, Plato? He describes how Plato believed that there was uh, this theory of forms, okay? And how what we see, the, the pew you're sitting on, isn't really a pew. It's just a, you know, a, some kind of manifestation of a, of a greater reality somewhere. There's a blueprint way off in some pie-in-the-sky land, which that's how I took it. He didn't say it that way. That, it, that the pew that you're sitting on is blueprinted after. The true form or the true ex- part of matter that you're, of the bench that you're sitting on is somewhere off somewhere else in a perfect form. And you're sitting on an imperfect uh, model after that. And so he described all of this. And if you're kind of puzzled at the whole theory, well, I was a little bit at first. And he began to go through and describe not only that theory, but how to use philosophical argument to make your point. And as I heard that, I thought, wow, you could really, you could make a dog look like a cat if you use that system, you know, right. And he even showed how he can make a dog become a cat in the philosophical way of arguing. And so here I am going from this to that, and I really struggled with it. And then he started talking about how the Greeks believed there was a, a creator, right? But that creator was created. Well, that sounds like some of the fringe religion movements I've heard before, you know? This demiurge who was a created being, and he made order out of chaos. Wow, there's some interesting parallels to the Bible, aren't there? But there was one underlying theme. Somehow, through our knowledge, we can escape this existence, even our bodies at some point, and go into some out-of-this-world realm, some new experience. Now, isn't there some truth to that? I mean, yeah, but I think I want to I wanna necessarily escape this existence. I would like to be a new creation. But he described this whole idea. And then he talked about uh, wisdom and the Greek word logos, or logos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I thought, okay, here he goes. I'm, I've taken Greek. I can, I can handle this. 
And he began to describe it. And I went back and I started looking in my concordance at the time and my, my uh, Bible dictionaries, my word study dictionaries, my Greek Bibles, tracing this word. And it didn't have anything to do with what this guy was saying in class. So there I would go. I would go ride six miles there and six miles back. And all along the way, I'm thinking to myself, this is a, just a bunch of, ah, why am I taking this? And I took that class and this week, uh, years later, I was looking at the word logos, <laughs> logos again. And I said, huh, there's a lot to this actual this word. And so I'm telling you that experience to tell you that there's a lot of theories out there about what wisdom, people think wisdom is, or knowledge is, or what we should base our life on. And there's a whole school of thought that thinks that somehow you've got to escape this life and go into the other realm. In fact, I heard from a young adult recently that I know of who described to me his latest theory of how he could escape this existence and go into another realm. And as I heard about that, I began to say to myself, how come they ha this has nothing to do with reality? It almost seems like it's somewhere way out there. It has nothing to do with reality. We have to escape reality to experience it. Is that really the way it is spiritually? We have to somehow get into some other way of thinking or, or some secret knowledge and then we could escape this mess that we're in now and go there. That's like a placebo effect for your mind. And some people accuse Christianity of that. But here's the difference. In Christianity and in John's Gospels and in the Bible, we, the rest of the Bible, we find this idea of wisdom and logos, if you want to use that word, but, but expression of knowledge, true knowledge, is found in a person. Not some abstract idea, not some way of arguing that you could prove your point and make people think you have a valid point, but your premises and everything else is all false. This is a person who makes the evidence that points to him and the, the fact that you could believe in him an experience that you want to have. And so Philo and these others never really meant that Logos was a person. They thought that it was maybe an archangel, Philo thought that, maybe some idea of ideas or some impersonal reason, but the Bible teaches us that true knowledge is found in a person. You can study all the subjects you want in the world. You can ride 6.3 miles back and forth to the college until you get tired of that and get your driver's license, get a car, and wonder why you didn't do that in the beginning. You can go to all these classes and learn so many things in this world. You can even come to church week after week and learn a whole lot of knowledge. But if it doesn't reveal to you a person, or to me, a person, it's worth nothing. And this person that I'm talking about became known as the name of Jesus. A real person in space and time that tells us that we don't have to escape this existence. We can actually have life here and now, life abundantly, and look forward to a greater existence in the future. John uses the word logos to describe it in John chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, in the beginning was the word, or that's where they get the idea of logos in the Greek mindset. It's that somehow wisdom you can escape reality with. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Everything that exists, 
The fact that we can even use our brains to think points us to the reality that there is someone who is greater than us. And it says that this person, this being, existed in the beginning. John's trying to correct the idea that somehow it was some impersonal created being who created our world. He's also trying to correct the idea that it's some impersonal idea that we have to somehow know perfectly to escape this existence. And he points everybody to the real knowledge and the real creator. And he says his name was the Word. And the Word was God. And he uses the same words in Genesis 1.1, if you look at the Old Testament in Greek, the words in arche are there as well in the Greek Old Testament, if you look at it. And he's telling everybody that the creator of our world is this person I'm about ready to tell you about. And he was not just a human being. He was not just some grand idea. He was actually somebody who was right here with us. We could touch, we could feel, we could see. And he was God. Now he uses the word was, not the sense that Jesus was God, now he's not God anymore, but in a sense that he's progressing. He was, and now he's going to progress to now what the difference it makes in our life. But it's clear in John 1, nothing exists without this person. Nothing. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this person that he's going to talk about. This church would not be here if it wasn't for this person we're going to talk about. And the giving hearts that he gave people to even get us to the point where we're at here today. And so before time began, the Logos, John uses it, but I'm going to stick with the idea of word he was there. He existed. Before our world even took form, he was there. But not only that, my question that came to me was, okay, then why did he have to all of a sudden enter into our world? It says that this word will eventually, this light will enter our world. Why does the Creator have to do that? Couldn't he just speak and there it is and all of that? Well, these other creators that people talk about could do that. But this one who has a heart that is linked to his people would not do that. In fact, John describes it this way. In him was life. The life was a light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. You notice this whole thing and you're saying, oh, this almost reminds me of creation. Well, yeah, it's supposed to. It's supposed to remind you of the creation story. It uses the very, some of the very words we find in the creation story. And this darkness is not just talking about the darkness at the beginning of our world. It's also talking about what happened after the fall of Adam and Eve and how their hearts were separated from the light giver. And the only way for them to come back was for the light to come and to shine into darkness. But not just in darkness, like shining a flashlight on something, but really taking residence in each person and shining. So darkness is a moral condition here. And somebody says it this way, the whole phrase is indeed a startling paradox. The light does not banish the darkness. You know how you turn the lights on and it was dark in here, now it's, it's not dark anymore. The darkness does not overpower the light. Light and darkness coexist in the world side by side. That's what one person's saying about this. It's like you got light and darkness and they're at odds with each other. And in this text, the idea comes out is, okay, which side are you going to be on? Is the light going to shine in darkness? 
overtake you? Or will you remain in darkness? Some people believe that they have light or new light. Some people, I get those theories every once in a while from people. And I've only been pastoring for eight years. And you get people coming to you saying, I got a, uh, something for you. Something the Lord has shown me. Some light. And the first question I have is, okay, what does it have to do with Jesus? Because in this text, He is the light. And if He is shining in my life, and I know Him, then anything that comes to me claiming to be from Him has to be in accordance to the experience we have written right here. And what's interesting is that some people believe they have light, but it doesn't point to Him. And therefore, how great is that darkness? And so I want the light to reign in my life. I want, but this is saying here, this man was sent from God, his name was John, and John tells us exactly who this light is, the one that we need to look to. This one came as a witness to bear witness concerning the light so that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. I mean, John's almost writing as good as a philosopher here. And if you're thinking to yourself, okay, you're going back and forth with almost like a philosophical argument, let's just get the main point here. The main point is, the Word was God. That Word is just being described now as light. And John is saying, here is the true light, right here. And who does he point to? He doesn't point to his own message either. He doesn't point to it at all. He points to a person. You can say to any pastor who preaches good sermon or whatever like that, the pastor has nothing to do with it. It has to do with what the person is saying. Are they pointing you to the right direction? That's what John was doing. It doesn't matter if you like this sermon or not, or you like the last one or whatever. It matters if it's pointing you in the right direction. We're going to find out exactly who John believes this to be. He says, this person was the true light. He lightens every man coming into the world. If you're sitting here today, you're sitting here with some kind of knowledge that there's got to be something beyond this world the way it is. Because if you want this world to keep going on the way it is, that's a pretty dark thought, isn't it? I don't even watch the news anymore. It's just, first of all, I don't have time to watch it. Second of all, even if I wanted to keep up with it all, it's just one bad story after another. I mean, I thought when I moved from the Midwest, I thought for surely I'm moving to the promised land. But I move here and there's shootings every day and there's all of this. I'm thinking, man, we moved to the inner city. I should have just moved to Wichita, Kansas. It's pretty dark in this world. And when we leave this place here, we feel like we're lifted up and there's some light shed into our, our darkness. But when, you leave, when we leave this place, we need to continue to have something to shine in our lives, something that we can look to, someone and John says, here he is. He was in the world. The world came into being through him. It's like a restatement here. The world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own received him not. So there you are. The world doesn't know this person in general. Would you say that the world as we know it knows Jesus? Some believe he's nothing more than a good man who did miracles. Others believe that he could have been one of the Buddhas or teachers. Others believe that, oh, maybe he was an imam. Maybe he's got some good writings. There's all kinds of beliefs out there about this person. The world doesn't really know this person. 
it's up to us to tell them about this person. Not out of a guilt trip as to why you should do it. And it's not totally dependent upon you either, because heaven has resources beyond us. But God gives us the privilege of sharing who this person is. But notice, the whole world doesn't know him. So he doesn't send Jesus to all these different tribes of the world. Instead, the only record we have from the Bible is that Jesus went to his own people. And who was that? Oh, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He came as a baby in a manger to the, in the, into the Israelite community. But did they know him? No, there he is, appearing right to his own, and they still don't know him. Verse 12 says, But as many as received him, he gave them authority to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. He comes to his own, and they don't choose to believe him. Now, there may be a question arising in your mind right there. We'll go ahead and address that question later on as to whether he could come to our, us here and have the same effect. But those who believed on his name were considered children of God. Those who believed on his name recognized that they were of eternal value because if they are the children of God, they are the children of the Creator and sustainer of this world and this universe. Isn't that of eternal value? I mean, think about that. We've got a father who says, oh, he gets after us. I get after my kids every once in a while too. But who says, I'm willing to provide everything for you. Do you have any first-class tickets to Mars? You do. By faith through Jesus, you're going to be able to see all kinds of unknown things. I can't afford that here and now, to afford some business trip to Mars or get on one of those uh, capsules that they're thinking about doing. That's beyond us. But you have a Heavenly Father who says, through his prophets and all of that, that you will mount up wings like eagles. I don't like flying particularly. But that kind of flying I wouldn't mind doing. And so we're children of God. If we choose to believe on his name, that's the if, isn't it? And it says in verse 13, we're the children who were born not of bloods, in other words, not of blood relations, nor of the will of flesh. In other words, your parents didn't, uh, didn't or did not, either some parents plan and some don't, it had nothing to do with it, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And some say, well, how do you understand 1 Corinthians where it says flesh and blood will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Pretty simple. It says it right here, doesn't it? If you choose to believe in Christ, that he actually cares for you. That not only that, that he bore sins for you, scars worse than the ones I have on my hand and my body. You become a child of God. And then this church becomes nothing more than an ambassador stopping point. This is an embassy where you receive encouragement and marching orders and, and encouragement from the Heavenly Father Himself, and then we go out and we declare to other people that they are that much valued as well as we are. And so we need to know this Jesus. It can change us. And the question I have as I read this was, okay, Murray, you've received Jesus. You know, I know that's a simple prayer. There I was, 17. I've prayed that prayer since then as well. Just asked him to take control of my mess of a life. And he did. But have I been born of God? I mean, I could pray a prayer like that. But what am I asking God to do? I'm not asking to be changed by and by somewhere. I'm asking to be changed here and now. 
I don't want to continue desiring the things I used to desire. I don't want to continue having the same cherished sins that can plague me throughout my life. I don't want to keep having this long chain that goes back in my genealogy for hundreds of years of abuse, alcohol, anger, and all of that. I want that all broken. And I don't want to just wait sometime way in the future to have it happen. The Bible says it can happen now. We've been spending these weeks focusing on Jesus' last teachings, His ministry on the cross, His death and burial and resurrection. Something is starting to happen beyond what I've experienced before this time. There are certain things, that temptations that come our way, and we all know what they are. And mine have begun to just become meaningless almost. I'm not saying I'm becoming perfect or whatever like that, but the, the, the ones that he's pointed out to me. And now the devil comes at me with them. And there I am, thinking to myself, they're not really very tasteful anymore. Because the first thing that flashes to my mind is somebody on a cross, and I'm not worshiping the cross, I'm worshiping the person on the cross, who's going through so much more to help me realize I don't have to give in to that temptation. He didn't give in to the temptations. It makes the temptation so small and worthless. And so, you can be born of God and that can begin to, those chains can begin to fall off and there could be a link or two left until they're made new, I'm not saying. But, but He will take care of those things. One by one. He's got those heavenly bolt cutters and He's going to clip each one of them right off. If we will let him. And so if that's taking place in my life, then I'm going to go ahead and do one thing from now until I see him face to face. I'm just going to stay connected with him. I'm just going to stay focused on him. Because if he can do that now and take away these temptations one by one and deal with them and bring them to my mind and say, is it really worth it, Murray? Is it really worth it? Then I believe I'll become a better person through him way before I experienced the new body and all of that. I'm my worst critic, so don't think I ever think I've arrived. But I do see the value in staying focused on it. I'd preach this from now until he comes, but I know some people it's, it's kind of like, okay, let's move on to another subject. But this is the subject. This is the foundation. The logos or the main idea that we all need to get is Jesus. You may think of a different name in the Old Testament, but in verse 14 it says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We beheld His glory. That's the idea of Shekinah glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Every temple service, everything glorious in the Old Testament was all pointing to this person. They weren't just setting up some worship service out in the wilderness to, to, for no reason. It was all pointing to this person. It says He tabernacled amongst us. His glory, and that's the same idea of the Shekinah glory in the temple. He is the fulfillment of everything. The foundation of their worship and their belief. And it says He's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is overflowing with that. And John says, He was a long time ago before me. He preceded me a long time ago. And what does it mean to be begotten? Does that mean that He was somehow created? He had to have a father and a mother? No, it had nothing to do with that. It's very simply throne language. And I'll show you that in a minute here. 
as our young people look in Hebrews 11 for their scripture. Here's your answer, FBI agents. It's Hebrews 11, verse 17. The word begotten, or one of a kind, okay, is a word that's also used to describe another son in the story of the Bible. Uh, we told you the story during the children's story of Kinzo, but here it's a story of somebody in the Bible, and it uses the same word of begotten that it describes Jesus and uses to describe him. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Excuse me. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Same wording. And so does that mean that, that, that Abraham never had any other children but Isaac? No. He had Ishmael too. Right? There's a whole thing that we need to talk about someday about Ishmael. But, but here, it's not his only flesh and blood child. It's the child of promise. It's the one and only in the sense that the special one. And so we find here that he is the one who is called the promised child. You keep reading there and it describes how Isaac eventually brings the blessing on down and eventually who comes through that line? Jesus himself. So Hebrews 11:17 describes that the one and only, that the true special child was Isaac. And what happened to Isaac? Remember that whole story being acted out and never was ever to be carried out? It was actually pointing forward to what the Father and the Son would do through Jesus. There's other Old Testament roots as well. You look here in uh, Psalms. So Isaac's the only son or the loved one or the one that he really was focused on. Begotten. He uses the word um, genomai, which is coming into being. And that very word is now used to describe a son in the Old Testament. And his name isn't given to us, but it's a royal son. And in Psalm 2, it says, I will declare the decree of Jehovah, or Yahweh. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Same root as what it's describing Jesus and Isaac. Same idea. It's just a different uh, tense. And so it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled in but a little time. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. Whoever the son is, is of royal stature. Whoever the son is describing here, he dashes the nations to pieces like pottery. And whoever the son is here, he rules with a rod of iron. We find none other than in Revelation 19, Jesus Christ. And so to describe Jesus as the only begotten, he is a special son. I mean, who else can be claiming to be the son of God? We can claim to be children of God, but the son of God, it's only Jesus. And so not only that, it's not describing that he was born and he had to be created. It's describing that God had a special purpose for this being in the Godhead was to be declared as king. The scepter of Jacob was to actually be passed over to him. It was all pointing to him. And so he's going to be the king of glory, either in our lives today, or if we don't choose to receive him, we'll see him in the clouds of glory sitting as king. It's really our choice to experience the light now or to sit in darkness and hide in caves and weep and gnash our teeth at the sight of the light of the world. And so the King of glory is none other than Jesus Christ.
He believes that you're of eternal value. He believes I'm of eternal value. It's a simple math equation, isn't it? If I lived forever, if you live forever, wouldn't you at some point surpass all the people who've ever lived in this world come and died? Wouldn't you, if you added up all their lifetimes and you want to, just one of us live forever, wouldn't we eventually mathematically overtake every human being who's ever lived as far as the lifespan? That is an amazing amount of value in each one of us. It's an amazing thought that we could live a life like that. That I'm of eternal value, and so are you. And so John doesn't just end it there. He says, out of his fullness, and this is the idea of, you know how you get a ship? And you, in ancient times, you would put as much supplies in the hold as you could. You'd cram them in there because you knew that you had to survive across that voyage, right? And say so with the cram, that's the word they use there, they crammed all of this in. But it really couldn't be contained. Or it's like this idea of... Um, no space remaining. In other words, Jesus was so full of the kindness of God. That's what he came with provisions from heaven with, to, to unload them on us. It says, for the law came through Moses, but there is no but in the Greek. What did he unload upon us? The law of Moses was through his kindness, was it not? To show them the better way? To have them be lights to the world around them? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a list in the Greek language. Law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. It's a list of God's grace and how he's poured it out upon us through Moses and now through the greater Moses, Jesus himself. And the Father declared him. And so Jesus embodies the law. It's not an either or like we've got to have law and grace. It's actually both. God provides the right ideal for us to pursue, but he says you can't do it. You really can't. You need to have him cram full in you to be able to do this thing. And so if we hear the words of Jesus, there's no room for anything else. The devil may come in there and see a little, little night table there in your, in your spiritual house, if you will, and say, oh, can I put this temptation over there? And you'll say, no, there's no room. Here's the picture. And you put the picture of Jesus there, right? There's no room for you. He's just full of it full in your life, your total focus. You know, he uh, said in verse 26, I'm, John said, I'm the voice, but one stands among you whom you do not know. Can you imagine that? He's out there baptizing, pointing them to Jesus over and over again, and he says, but you don't know him. You don't even know the guy. Could, could I hear sermon after sermon for, for the next 50 years that the Lord doesn't come and not know the guy? How could that happen? How could it happen that, that somebody could go to a church like this and then there I am paying a pastoral visit to them, and it hasn't happened in this church yet, but it's happened in other churches, where I could pay a pastoral visit to them and they've been in the church for 50, 60 years. And they don't know if they'd have eternal life. They don't know if they're on the right path. How could that ever be? Well, the blame will start here. You know, it's my office fault if, if, if for some reason Jesus has not been shown clearly. I will begin taking the blame for that. But I will not continue to perpetuate that. 
He has to be known among us. That mission will never be accomplished. Jesus, as far as Him returning, the people He wants to be saved through us will never be saved unless we know Him. Not just about Him. Like He's the, 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 the somehow secret knowledge we've got to somehow reach so we can escape this old world. No, it's none of that at all. It's so we can live truly in this world. And so He says, well, if it's any... If there's any doubt in your mind who he's talking about, he says the Lamb of God takes away the sin, that darkness in our world. He's the one who we want to be baptized by. We have to know him to receive his baptism. Otherwise, next week we'll be looking at how we need to lay down our kingdoms at his feet. But this week, can we at least say that the one that John's talking about is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, the true Lamb who wants to bear our sins and give us true light? And can, could we say that everything that we proclaim as a people points to him? Can you honestly say that all 28 fundamental beliefs point to Jesus? All of them. Some of you say yes, some of you say no. Well, I looked at him this week. You know, uh, Ty Gibson and David Ashrick are really focusing a lot on knowing Christ. David Ashrick did a whole series of programs at Pioneer Memorial Church for the young people, showing them the value of focusing on Christ. And then that will begin to take care of everything else. And they developed this website. It has this series of 27 studies, not 28, called TruthLink. And he goes through the whole Adventist message and shows that they faithfully are packaged, if we were to do it right, packaged in Christ. They find their true fulfillment in Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, years ago he wrote this. He says, I used to wonder at our spiritual weakness as a people. Now I'm not amazed at all. Reason is clear. We preach doctrinal truth. A lot of facts. We preach prophetic truth. We've preached the necessity of obeying obedience to God's law, but we have put Jesus and his cross after the comma in almost a whisper. The seventh day is the Sabbath. Last Sunday, we exclaim. And oh yeah, by the way, Jesus died for you. Can you imagine going to, a, going to a public place and telling them that first part without the second part first? I mean, think about it. If someone who doesn't know Jesus at all, or even if they do know Jesus, where is your common ground? Your common ground is right there first. You take them from where they're at, like, like Philip did with the eunuch, and then you spread them over to where they are. They should be. Jesus died for you, should be what we should say, even you, before you even sensed your need of a Savior. And you'll be pleased to know He has given us the Sabbath to remind us of our total dependence on Him. So rest in faith that He will complete the work He has begun in your heart. Or as one of our ancient our founders said, one of them said, the Sabbath is the sign of the cross of Calvary. So it points to it. So as I look at that, I say, okay, I better go ahead and evaluate every 20, all of our 28 fundamental beliefs. And I, you can ask me to email this to you because I'm not going to go through all of them. But as I went down through them, there were only two that were a little bit weak. The first one was the first one, <laughs> the Scriptures. Um, I said to myself, surely of all the places we should be putting how all the Scriptures testify of Jesus. There was a little bit of that, not very much, but mostly just the idea of the Word of God is being inspired. But as we look at it, though, all Scripture does testify of Jesus. It all points to Him. Everything from the sacrifices on down to the prophecies. 
And so that's one of the weakest links we have in all the 20, 28 fundamental beliefs. But as I looked at the bigger fundamental belief book, I found a little more information. You just take our official statement, it looks a little weak, but you look into our books and we flesh it out more and do recognize that it testifies of Jesus. And you go on down through all of them. It all points to him. This other one here, I found that was a little bit weak, was spiritual gifts. I mean, of that one there, we were focused on our history a lot, but we should have also mentioned that she, Ellen White herself saw herself as the lesser light pointing to the greater light himself. Um, that is in some of our publications. But uh, the main focus of our belief that we've written down is that Christ sent his Holy Spirit to give gifts. So it mentions Christ. But it's a little, is it foundational though? Of course it should be. If he's sending the gifts, it's, he's the foundation. So you could, you could look through that and say, oh, it's not as clear as it should be. Well, actually it is. He sent his Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And so I found they were all as I look through them critically, because I am a critical mind sometimes, we all like to do that, pick things apart, but as I look through them, I said, honestly, is he the foundation of our church? Is his wisdom the source of our beliefs? Do our teachings then dispel darkness? Yes, they do. That's why every time we have a series of meetings, the devil comes in with force. Because we have this balance of law and grace, don't we? We should have that balance there, how Jesus, the lawgiver, also provides the provision for us to keep the law. We recognize on the cross his wisdom is there. That's one of our fundamental beliefs. And recognizing my worth begins to dispel the darkness. It's like the angels of, of the devil have a hard time penetrating if we really recognize how valuable we are. It doesn't matter that I grew up in a home that was a poor home, broken family and all of that. It matters that I have a heavenly family to complete my brokenness and to make me new. And so that dispels the darkness. And then I go over to his resurrection. He's got that power available. This can help me break every chain, break every chain. You know, that wonderful song that, that I heard in Mount Rubido Church. Man, that was powerful to hear that song. And it dispels darkness to know that darkness cannot hold on to me if I don't want it to. And so his resurrection power is there. But not only that, he gives me help even right now. He says through this wonderful quotation here in Desire of Ages, which some of you read this week, if they labored in connection with him, if we labored in connection with him, right? His divine power combining with their human effort, they could not fail of success. The disciples themselves, if they remain connected to Jesus, they would go forth in power. And so even if they wound up in prison cells where it seems dark, they were connected with him and the darkness was dispelled. And then we go to us here. Here we are, you know, in our devotions. Aren't we, shouldn't we be pouring out our best for this one who's loved us so much? Shouldn't we stay connected with him and focus on what he has done? Now, he's the true wisdom or logos, if I want to use the Greek word. And really, if we stay connected with him, something amazing is going to happen. The day, the, the total bright day the Bible talks about to end all this crime and abuse and everything else that's been perpetuated, that day will come and it will dispel all darkness. So truly, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold his glory Glory of the only begotten of the Father. And He is full of grace and truth. 
true wisdom comes from Him. I want to thank Joyce for this poem. I, as I looked at it, I said, wow, I hoped, uh, I hoped for something that would be useful, and I, this is beyond useful. This is just summing it all up. I mean, look at this. Getting wisdom is a very important thing. There I was at that philosophy class. That guy had a lot of wisdom. Um, he, he valued a lot, but he didn't value the true wisdom, did he? It comes from God, our Creator, Lord, and King. Human wisdom cannot be trusted in any way. It leads you down the wrong path and you'll go astray. You'll do things you never thought you would do, and you will have a good time doing them too. It's not like the pleasures of this world aren't pleasures of this world. We'll think that we're going down the right path. We'll think that it feels good and it is the right way. But is it? It's not. God's wisdom will protect you from Satan's evil ways. Excuse me. Seek for wisdom and search for it to know how to live. Be receptive and attentive to the wisdom God will give. That means constant. We have to be constant in that. God's wisdom will protect you from Satan's evil ways and will guard and preserve you the rest of your days. It's, it's a here and now, isn't it? He can literally make us not just the frozen chosen preserved, but a real, but a real vibrant, preserve us, living person of God. God's wisdom will protect you from Satan's evil ways. It has done such an amazing thing, especially in the last few years for me. It will guard and preserve you the rest of your days. God's gift of wisdom is more precious than you realize. So stay close to God, and eternal life will be your prize. And a crown of glory will be waiting for you if you have done what the Lord wanted you to do. What does he want us to do? I mean, this whole poem talks about it. Seek him. Seek true wisdom. It's found in Jesus. Stay connected with him. And if you do that, it will dispel all darkness. I wanted to have us sing a closing song as we wrap up here. It's called, The Church Has One Foundation. I've discovered true wisdom is in Him. It's Jesus Christ. And so if you'd like to just sing to Him today as we close our service, we'll put this song up on the screen and you'll say, He's my foundation as well. If you'd like to stand, feel free. Bread. 
Oh, in heaven, help us to stay focused on that very special Son that you send into this world to be the light, to be the logos, the true wisdom, the main subject that we should go pursue for the rest of our lives. Help us to pursue him each day until that day when we see him in the clouds of glory. And we don't hide from him, but instead we say, this is our God whom we have waited for. He will come and save me. In his name I pray. Amen.